You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Welcome to Theater Geeks Anonymous, the podcast about Broadway flops, scandals, and new work. I'm your host, Ebony Vines. And I'm your host, Pamela Shandro. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Theater Geeks Anonymous podcast on the Broadway Podcast Network and all your favorite podcast listening apps. Thank you. you. You all listen to, um, if you listen to last week's episode, Pamela did the musical. Platinum. Yes, Platinum, the musical. Um, and so along that same vein, we are going to continue with our, uh, you know, musicals inspired by Smash or Smash was inspired by these because actually both of these came before Smash did. Well before. Well before. <laughs> I mean, people were not born yet that were involved with that show, so, or, or some were really young, you know. I'm going to say yeah. that, like, some of those cast members must have been born in the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> Which just, I know 100%. that that's, it's not even, like, because the 90s, I feel like the 90s is always 10 years ago. I've said that before, but. I know. <laughs> but it's actually, like, 30 years ago. Yeah. Which just yeah. blows my mind. And yeah. I know that, like, that's what I used to hear old people say when I was younger. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which mm-hmm. I guess means I'm old now. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't feel or look old. <laughs> I know. No, I mean, the two lead actresses are about our age. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, some of the ensemble definitely. Oh, yeah. Jessica, um, Bobby, those are, they were both born in the yeah, 90s. I, gar- I almost guarantee it. Sweet baby angels. They are. <laughs> little sweet babies. Mm-hmm. So this week, I'm doing the episode, and I'm going to talk about a show that is mentioned on Smash. Fun! So if you all were, will remember in the pilot episode... Right after Julia goes to pick up Tom from the airport, um, they come back to his apartment and Ellis mentioned, like Ellis was reading a coffee table book about Marilyn. And so this is the thing that sort of sparks the whole idea for them to do a musical about Marilyn Monroe. But there's a line in it when Ellis suggests the idea, Tom Levitt and Julia Houston say in unison, we tried it. It was a huge flop. <laughs> but they become so enthralled with her life story that it begins yeah. to take over their brains, and eventually they begin writing one, and the rest, as we know, is smash history. 
Well, and that can I, I'm sorry. I'm gonna, yeah. Yeah, for the Do it. <laughs> because there is such a, a thing as like a, a story that is too good to die. Yeah, yeah. And I'm convinced that is where we are with the vampire musicals as well. Yes, it yeah. just hasn't been told well enough yet. Right. But right. it will because vampires are a very, like a healthy story source. <laughs> Like that is something that there are, there are cult followings of vampires. There are novels and I've read them all. I love vampire novels, but like, I mean, Twilight that well, I don't like those, but okay. (laughs) I mean, I'm just saying in terms of hits, you know, like there's the Twilight novels and the movies were huge hits right now. You have, uh, what we do in the shadows Mm -hmm. on, on FX diaries. And what was the other one? Uh, true blood. Yes, that's right. Yes, mm-hmm. Stackhouse series. Yeah. I mean, like, vampires are great, and we love them. We love, like, fantasy stuff like that is great, and they're just, it just hasn't been told well enough yet. Right, right. But it yeah. will, one of these days, it will. And then we, like, yeah, see, now this is what was missing in Lestat, and this <laughs> is what was missing in Dancing of the Vampires. <laughs> All right, proceed. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Marilyn, uh, there's been so many movies and everything based on her life. And yeah. so, you know, pe- people people want to so very much get her um, life up on the Broadway stage. Okay, yeah. so today's show is called Marilyn, an American Fable. <laughs> okay, now, this musical was said to be the only authorized Marilyn Monroe musical. Authorized by who? The estate? Anna Strasberg, the daughter of Lee Strasberg, okay. who was very intimate friends with Marilyn Monroe, was okay. her uh, acting instructor. Okay. That's so fair. I'll take it. Yeah. I mean, so that's what they're, that's what people, you know, that's what, that's what it's being called because, um, so there were 16 producers involved in this show. And Goodness. right. And see, here's the thing. Nowadays, honestly, we're used to the Tony Award stage being filled oh, with yeah. producers, <laughs> but they don't all have creative say. Problem with this show is more than should have had oh. creative say. Yeah. And so, and back in the day, as we know, there were not as many producers. Like you didn't have 36 producers because the show didn't cost $25 million right. like it does nowadays. Yeah. Okay. So, so um, when people would go see the show and they would see that it had 16 producers, it, w- it would sort of blow their minds. And, you know, at the time for the time, it wasn't a good sign. Mm. Okay. Um. All right. Uh, the producers looked for their Marilyn in Los Angeles, and among the 800 hopefuls, they found Gerilyn Petchel. Um, she had moved to L.A. seven years prior with her husband and daughter before winning the role of Marilyn. She had sung backup for Tony Orlando and had sung for television commercials and theme songs for TV movies, among other things, since the move. She said that she had wanted to be on Broadway when she um, made a trip from her hometown of Milwaukee, Wisconsin to New York City for the first time when she was in high school. No oh, feeling. I yeah. love it. One of us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely one of us. Unfortunately, 
Newspapers such as the Lacrosse Tribune in November of 1983 report that the creative team worried as to whether she could meet the challenge of the titular role with her dancing. Mm-hmm. Although she looked every bit the part and had worked hard on her impersonation, mm-hmm. which uh, a few people called it that. Um, they worried she may be too green for Broadway and unable to meet the expectations. Mm. According to an article on Playbill.com, Geraldine was replaced 10 days before the musical played its first preview. Oh, oh, I hate this so much. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So she, she was told on October 7th of 1983 that she would be replaced by Allison Reed, who had originally lost the role to Pachelle. Um, and she was brought in to replace her. Allison Reed was a more experienced actress and had previously been in. These also were shows that were not successful. Oh, brother and dance a little closer. But she was in the touring company of a chorus line for which she later reprised her role as Cassie in the film version. Mm. Allison is also known to high school musical fans as Miss Darbus, the homeroom and drama teacher. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Uh, another major change that happened during the rehearsals was the replacing of the director choreographer, Kenny Ortega. Kenny oh, Ortega. Wow. He's also known for uh, high school musical. He yeah. directed that. Then also um, he's doing work on and, or did work on in the Heights cause they're finished shooting. Mm-hmm. So this, this would be his only Broadway credit. Which actually um, kind of surprises me. He, well, so dance and, and music, you know, like oriented. So the right. fact that he stuck kind of stuck outside of the, the, I mean, still kind of in the creative arts, obviously, but like, right. I don't know. He, yeah. I mean, this was his only credit because really immediately after he lost his job, he started getting television and film work. So it was oh. just like, he was like, meh, screw yeah. theater. I'm, <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. Make more money, you know, so. No grief. Yeah. Yeah. Right. (laughs) And he was the director choreographer. So he was doing both, you know, both roles. Yeah. He was replaced. Do you know how long he was replaced before the opening? Um, Was it the same? I mean, it was was during, yeah, because it was during rehearsals. Oh, man. Before previews. It was during rehearsals. Okay. This sounds very similar to the plot of Smash. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, except except at least with Smash, the creative team stayed the creative team. Yeah. Um, you know, that yeah, yeah. that would be the difference. They didn't get rid of bombshell. Derek as much as we wanted them to. <laughs> yeah. Derek's still there. Tom and Julia are still there. You know, the only thing is with the the lead actresses, um, that yeah. that was a big change. Um, so Kenny Ortega was replaced by Tommy Walsh and Bayorka Lee, who were uh, a chorus line alumni. I thought they I t- recognized that name. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They took over as co-directors, but Kenny Ortega retained the credit. According to Ken Mandelbaum's book, Not Since Carrie, 10 musical numbers and 45 minutes of dialogue were cut from the show before opening night. Ten? Think about 10. I mean, how many songs were in the show? There, I mean, there were a lot. There were a lot, but yeah, 10. Goodness. 10 and 45 minutes just before opening. Can you imagine like coming in the day of the opening and being like, Oh, great. Let's go through my wait. <laughs> What's, what? well, on top of, especially if you're Allison mm. 
And you, you step, like they brought you in so late. Yes. That you're already playing catch up and now you're like, wait, I didn't have to learn all of those songs. Right. Man. (laughs) It's crazy. It's absolutely nuts. Yeah. The show had numerous individuals credited as writers of the score. Among them, Beth Lawrence, Doug Frank, Gary Portnoy, Jean Nepali, Norman Talheimer. I might Sounds be good. saying that correct. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the book was written by Patricia Michaels. So she's the only person who wrote the book. But okay. I mean, the, yeah. it was like a merry-go-round of people writing the score. Oh, Lord. According to a Playbill.com article written by Mark Robinson, who wrote the book I mentioned in the platinum um, in the platinum episode that we did, he wrote the book Musical Misfits. He says in this article, the score proved to be problematic, perhaps stemming from the fact that so many people were contributing to it. Five <laughs> composers are credited in the opening night playbill, but it is rumored that there are over a dozen songwriters who were employed in the creation of Marilyn and American Fable. Oh my Lord. Wally Harper, music, David Zippel, lyrics were brought in to write Cold Hard Cash, a song that would be the equivalent of Diamonds Are Girl's Best Friend. Michael's book vacillated between earnest storytelling and colorful camp and didn't always make an accurate account of Monroe's life. Hmm. Many critics were particularly appalled by just how the dialogue and how incorrectly the story of Monroe's was told. Marilyn and American Fable had a hard time striking the right tone and capturing simultaneously the human and iconic Marilyn Monroe. Okay, so everybody, there is a very bootleg version. (gasps) You can see the entire thing on YouTube, which I did today. Yes, I did. (laughs) You're like, oh, I'm running a little late. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. So um, you can hear the music pretty well. The picture's very, uh, you know, pixelated, as you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, it's better quality than the Legs Diamond that you okay. can see on YouTube. Uh, so if you, if you want to get a sense of, you know, uh, the costumes, you definitely can. If you want to get a sense of the music and how Allison sounds, you absolutely can. Okay. Um, it's, it's, it's clear enough to, to be able to get a, a real good sense of those things. I, side note for bootleggers in the 80s, how were you carrying that big old camera around? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's not like our little smartphones now yeah. where you can just record. It's just like, you, how did you sneak that sucker in? Like, what kind of coat were you wearing? It's just. Well, they all um, wore trench coats in the 80s right. <laughs> sometimes you have- with nothing underneath them oh gross <laughs> just gross. a camera they all had those enormous shoulder pads so really you could probably just put the camera underneath one of the, like what was supposed <laughs> to be a shoulder pad and it would be like oh yeah he's just got a big shoulder pad <laughs> it is wild wild when i see bootlegs like that i just don't know how people I don't know Maybe how they, they did it. They also may not have cracked down on it as much back then. Right. Because, right. like, I feel like, you know, if, and I know this for a fact, like, if any video surfaced of Wicked on YouTube or anything, they would have it down in, in a minute. Right. 
Right. Like there were people that were constantly searching the internet for bootlegs like that. And in that very second that they see it, they would be mm -hmm. contacting YouTube to take it down immediately. Mm -hmm. So I think that there was, a, there's a lot more care now, but right. there is also, I, I feel like the FBI warning on, on videotapes wasn't even really that big a deal until we were growing up in the eighties. So maybe piracy just wasn't that big an issue for, for the theater community. Right, but probably harder. It's much easier the the way that technology progresses. It's yeah. easier to duplicate things. I, oh, totally. Well, and like now too, it's like you could just wear those glasses that have the camera inserted in them. That's Nobody right. would even know. That's right. That's right. It's scary. It is. <laughs> so, I mean, thank you to that human who did all that 1980 something work <laughs> to allow me to be able to see this performance. <laughs> Well, so uh, let me ask you your, your personal opinion on it. Do you feel like it definitely was a flop of the time or like it, it had some, it you know, had some good stuff that maybe, didn't yeah, I didn't, uh, uh, you know, I didn't, okay, don't crucify me, but like, <laughs> I didn't hate the score. Okay. I didn't. Um, I saw, I can't remember who it was now, but there's another article I was reading where this individual said the same. And actually it, it very well could have been Mark Robinson um, who said he didn't hate the score. But Mark, if you're listening, I'm not 100% sure, please correct me on the Twitters or whatever. Um, I, yeah, I didn't hate the score. Um, I was taking notes while I was watching. So I wasn't like just watching because yeah. I, you know, well, also, also trying to do this. Quality is probably not good enough right. to detail. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, you can't like read detail with faces and stuff, but you can, the sound, like I said, it's much, much better than the legs diamond sound Great. of that bootleg. So if you sure. want to get a sense of the score, if you want to get a sense of how well people are singing and the dialogue, you absolutely can do that from this. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, I didn't hate the score, but I absolutely saw what, what a lot of the complaints were with some of the dialogue, the storytelling, just the structure and the fictionalization of, of Marilyn's life. I, yeah. I absolutely, I could like see there that. Was so, there's such a wealth of, of true information right. on her life that you don't actually have to make up. So, I mean, I you know. can take artistic license on it, which I think is something that they did really well in Bombshell. Right. Like, and fill in the gaps for the, you know, because you don't really know what happened. She, the conspiracy theory is that she didn't kill herself, that she was actually right. murdered. And, right. But, you know, and that kind of stuff you can always figure out. But there's so much stuff that, like, we do know. Mm -hmm. you know we know from the source. I know. I know that. And that's, and that's, that's a point that people make. They're just like, I mean, why, why does it need, why did any of her story need to be fictionalized when, you know, right. you have, you do, you have such a wealth of information. Yeah. yeah. Although, <laughs> although the story was authorized by Anna Strasberg, it was highly fictionalized. As I said, this show set was a soundstage with minimal set pieces and included. <laughs> She's shaking her head, ladies and gentlemen. A Greek chorus oh, called Lord. Destiny. See, okay, here's I, the thing. Uh... Here's the thing. <laughs>
So a Greek chorus in a show can work. You know, Little Shop of Horrors, it works really well, really well. But then you have (laughs) Spider-Man. Doesn't work. No. Or the geek chorus in Liz Estrada Jones. Oh, no. Yeah, no. So, you know, I feel, often I feel like the Greek chorus in a musical is the equivalent of, and it was all a dream at the end of a story, like a novel or something like that. It's just like lazy. Well, and it, I feel like when it is used lazily is mm-hmm. when we have an issue with it, like right. in Spider-Man and like in Liz Estrada Jones. Right. The Greek chorus should be a support to the story, someone that helps to tell the story and to keep the through line moving, right. not just as a way to explain the scene that you just did because no one will understand it because you couldn't tell it in the first place. Right. <laughs> and, and sometimes you don't... You don't need them to support the story. You don't, like, she didn't yeah. need uh, people following her throughout her life. Right. So this Greek chorus was called Destiny. Mm-hmm. And it was a trio that followed Norma Jean from the time she was a, a young child to the end of the show. A few things that this show did not include, instead of ending on her suicide, the show ends with the moment between... Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn. So, I mean, she's calling him, which Mm -hmm. is similar to Bombshell, right? Where she's on the phone in the bed and is drink, you know, taking the pills and whatnot. She's not in the bed. She's in a robe and she's standing, standing a stage right. And she's on the phone with Joe. And then at the very end, Marilyn walks. (sighs) Okay. let, Let me just let me just talk about the set. (laughs) So you can see the set, you know, you can see it well in this YouTube video. So the concept for the set was that it was a soundstage Mm -hmm. and they would just bring on set pieces. So it was very minimalist. Mm -hmm. I mean, think Ivo Van Hove. Okay. Or, or, um, John Doyle. Okay. Right. Like, right. But no, okay, because <laughs> Ivo and John do it in a way that I all I can say is is just like better. Yeah, I feel I feel it, you know it, it was weird because at the end of it, so the word like Hollywood Land is is on the stage for a lot of the show. And so the last scene of the show, you have Marilyn stage right on the phone in her little white robe calling Joe DiMaggio. Then there's a reprise of this song that I actually really liked. And this, the curtains open and then there's little, uh, little Norma Jean because there was like grown Norma Jean, Marilyn, and then little one. Mm-hmm. It opens and then it says Hollywood land and she's standing there and then grown Norma Jean and her reprise the song together. And then this is what was so weird, right? So, so grown Norma Jean walks over to baby Norma Jean and then they end their song and she stands there and she like 
points to the Hollywood land and that's the end of it. Which like, <laughs> it, it would have been not horrible if honestly the Hollywood land sign didn't look so small. Yeah. And the, the way that it was like the proportions were weird, you know? So if it hadn't been so, if it had looked like she was pointing to the Hollywood land Hills or something, but it yeah. was just this little light up Hollywood land. <laughs> and it was so weird. Yeah. It was weird. So that I'm not a fan of the, wasn't a fan of the ending. Wasn't a fan. No. Okay. So. Well, I wonder if the 45 minutes that they cut from the show mm-hmm. had a different ending. I don't know. Like if could, it went could further. Do. Could do. Could 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 have. Uh, I mean, you know, we all watch Smash, and so we all know there's like a problem with just ending on her suicide, and so yeah. you do have to end with some sort of hopeful note, right? And so I I absolutely understand that, mm-hmm. uh, but it was just like, and and I felt doing the reprise could have been. Like it's, I like that song and I thought the two of them singing together was very sweet. And I, yeah. and I thought that could be a nice way to end it, but it was just so but weird. Then, She's standing yeah. in a robe. I know. And pointing that's, to Hollywood land. Like that was weird. Yeah. Like have the little Norma Jean sing the reprise and then quick change. Marilyn comes back in wearing the same dress grabs the hand and they both walk off stage together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but she, and, and they had time to have Marilyn leave and like, you know, she could have had the, the purple dress on uh, you know, underneath. Yeah, yes. totally. But that's not, she's standing in a robe. So oh, eh. man, that, that's that part. If ever there is a show where the lead characters are wearing something that is awful at the curtain call. It drives me crazy. It drives me crazy. Les Mis, you've got poor Fontaine wearing this sack. Yeah. Like, like sack. <laughs> That's true. And she's front and center. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's awful. Makes me yeah. sad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, especially when you're talking Marilyn, when she's yes. such a fashion icon and she's yeah. just standing in a white. Terry cloth robe. It's like not oh, even satin. It wasn't even like silk. No, it oh, wasn't even. Man. It wasn't. It wasn't great. <laughs> Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now you wanna get mixed up in the family business? Introducing the Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It wasn't great. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, so, the young version of Marilyn was played by Christy Coombs who was in the first and second national tours of Annie as Molly and Annie, respectively. She has no listed Broadway credits after Marilyn and American Fable. The musical centers around Marilyn's marriages, fans, and gossip. So it was, it was a strange hodgepodge of, of a story. The show makes reference to her famous film roles, but doesn't always outright mention the titles. 
There's speculation that there oh. wasn't sign off to be able to use mm. the songs she's famous for singing or using the real full names of the gossip columnist played by a then unknown Mary Testa. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, and Melissa Bailey as Hedda and Luella, respectively. Okay. The musical also didn't address her drug problem very well, but to say that she lacked sleep. I mean, it, it really didn't. Like, yeah. when I was watching it, it really, it really, it, okay, yeah. so there's one scene, I will say, there's one scene. She's in, and it's funny, because it looked a lot like the end of Bombshell. It was, it was weird. Yeah. She's in this, like, bed situation that looks like an open clamshell, no joke. <laughs> and it's all satin, same color satin as, like, Bombshell in the closing, no joke. But she's in the robe again. Yeah. She does have pills and stuff, and it's this song where she's, like, dancing with Destiny, the, the trio, and she's, like, taking pills, and, it, and, it, and she's on the phone, and it really felt, like I said, a lot like the end of Bombshell. Yeah. But it was weird, and, and it was in a very odd spot. So it was not the end of oh, the show at all. Okay. It was in a sh- weird, it, I thought, I mean, yes, she had a drug problem, but it was, it was like, it wasn't even the end of act one. Yeah. It was, it was a few songs before the end of act one. It was just in a strange Maybe to kind of show the spiral. The thing But is, it didn't. Well, Here's that, the thing is it yeah. didn't show the spiral. And I wonder right. if that is because of all of the stuff that they cut, though. Yeah. When you cut, you know, it, the thing is, like, it's surgery. Once you have the script done and, yeah. and been rehearsed, it's surgery to incise certain points. So if you don't do it correctly, you can, you can basically cut off an arm and a leg. You can. And then you don't know what the show is about anymore. And because the people that are in it have been so close to it, they don't see the problems anymore. I would also argue for, for like, to argue for Patricia, like in her case, Mm -hmm. the poor woman was working with an innumerable number of lyricists and composers. That must've been really difficult. To try to continue to rewrite your book Mm -hmm. to make sense as it's going to go into the next song is bananas. Well, and, and full stop, not all of the blame should ever be put on the book writer. Mm -hmm because she's not the one making the decisions to change all of that stuff. She may be making the decisions what things to change, but ultimately it falls to the 16 producers that couldn't find a compromise. Yeah. Until the day before when they said, you know what, we got to cut this show down an hour and a half. Let's get this done. And it was just like, (laughs) okay. It was still two hours. Wow. It was still two hours. So that thing would have been three hours. Ten songs and 45 minutes cut. It was still two hours. Brief. Yeah. I get the point. I mean, listen, there are some three-hour shows now. Les Mis, Phantom, Wicked are all three-hour shows. Right. But the story is so good and compelling that you don't mind sitting in your seat and watching it. Right. Hamilton, the same. Hamilton, yeah. Yeah. He he did cut time, but so it's not three hours, but still, I mean, this was... Holy geez. Okay. So 
Um, some of the songs I felt were that I, well, one song that a lot of people know is called You Are So Beyond. And it was sung by, I know it sounds silly, but it's, it's, the song is really about how Marilyn is like so beyond his wildest dreams. It sounds like it should have been written for Mean Girls. <laughs> you are so beyond. I know. <laughs> I know. It, but I promise you, it's yeah. a nice little ballad. Right. It really no, I is. I believe you. <laughs> but it does sound like it should be. And that was sung by the actor's name is Willie Falk. And he played Tommy, one of Marilyn's fans. Okay. Uh, one of Marilyn, uh, another one, another song is that I liked was they'll never get the best of me. And it's like, it's a big, uh, belty thing that Allison sings. It's the second to last song. And she, and that song got the longest applause as okay. well. Like when she nice. hit that last note. Yas queen. Yeah. It was great. It was great. Nice. And then another song that I also liked a lot is called A Single Dream. And so that song was sung by little Norma Jean at the top of the show. And then it's reprised at the end of the show with the two of them singing together. So I thought that was really sweet as well. Are any of these songs things that I can put into my cabaret show? (laughs) Maybe, maybe. Oh, yeah. I mean... They'll never get the best of me, but see, I like, I still like, um, they just keep moving the line for you. Yeah, no, I do too. Listen, these things are not mutually exclusive. Just because I choose one doesn't mean the other one can't be in there too. That's true. <laughs> I could just true. have a song of all power ballads or power belt songs. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> and then like a single dream, you could always sing with, uh, you know, little, little Pamela. Little Pamela needs a role. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, uh, Marilyn and American Fable opened on Broadway on November 20th, 1983 at the Minskoff Theater after 34 previews. The opening night cast included Peggy Blue, Michael Kubala, and T.A. Stevens, All is Destiny. So, this was the little trio. Uh, Christy Coombs is young Norma Jean, Allison Reed as Norma Jean, Marilyn Monroe, George Dvorsky as Jim Doherty, Lisa Lang as Babs, Debbie Monahan as Pat, Duba Wilkins as Madge, Melissa Bailey as Elda, and Luella. Uh, Mary Testa as Dottie, but also, um, oh, I, uh, Hedda. Hedda. But, but I think I... So this was on like IBDB like this. And so I don't know if there were like changes made mm. to the names. Cause Probably. like I said, the gossip, like you, you were not sure that they were able to get a permission to use their names. Yeah. Ramona was played by Deborah Dotson. Virginia played by Jody Mar- Marzor- Mar- Marzorati. Jody Marzorati. Uh, and then there's a ton of other people scenic design by tom h john costume design by joseph g alusi maryland and american fable closed on december 3rd of 1983 after only 17 performances yikes 
Allison Reed was nominated for a Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Actress in a Musical. This was the only award nomination Marilyn and American Fable received. Also, a point of contention that we usually have is that there's no indication that there was ever a tryout before the show headed to Broadway. That was going to be my question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Okay, so I'm going to read part of the New York Times review. The production surrounding the star looks as if it suffered a bombing raid during previews. Tom H. John's gloomy scenery built around the soundstage motif is a gutted retread of Robin Wagner's design for Jerry Herman's Hollywood musical Mac and Mabel. Joseph G. Alusi's costumes, Marilyn's expected, look as if they were picked up at a fire sale. The dance numbers are often thinly populated <laughs> I'm sorry. All I could think of was, it's a fire sale. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. The dance numbers are often thinly populated and the pit band sounds decimated. <laughs> oh, man. I know. The disposable songs, some of them joltingly out of period, also seem to have been radically cut. A few mercifully give up the ghost in less than a minute. The amateur direction and choreography are attributed to Kenny Ortega. The playbill also thanks another director, Tommy Walsh. As I said, there are actually two other gentlemen who took over. Mm. Perhaps someday one of these men or their several dozen collaborators will reveal what they had in mind. Marilyn in American Fable is so confused that it never gets around to its heroine's death. If nothing else, it must be the first exploitation of the Monroe legend that even denies necrophiliacs a good time. Whoa. <laughs> that is salacious with a capital S. I know. I Goodness. Know. Yeah, that was, that was a rough one. Uh, so that New York Times review was written by Frank Ridge. That okay. is correct. Uh, it's from November 21st, 1983. Okay, so to end on a on a, a high note, as we <laughs> as we like to do all Maryland music like musicals. Um, so here's some other Maryland shows. At the exact same time this one opened, there was oh a God. exact same time there was a musical on the West End called Maryland Exclamation Mark the Musical. <laughs> it was written by Mort Garrison about Marilyn Monroe. Uh, and it was originally produced in London in 1983 as a vehicle for Stephanie Lawrence. The show's book and lyrics were by Jacques Wilson, and it opened at the Adelphi Theater on March 17th of 1983, where it ran for 156 performances. Wow. Uh, the writers were American, but okay. it was done on the West End. In 2018, Marilyn, exclamation, part, exclamation mark, the new musical... <laughs> The new musical. The That's new the musical, yes. <laughs> played at the Paris Theater. The show featured a book by director Tegan Summer and an original score by Gregory Neighbors, plus additional songs made famous by Monroe. Ruby Lewis, who starred on Broadway in Cirque du Soleil's Paramore, took on the title role, and a rotation of celebrity guest performers were also, appear also appeared in various roles throughout the run. Okay, now there was actually 
a successful one woman show called Marilyn Forever Blonde, the Marilyn Monroe story in her own words and music. It was a one woman play with music written by Greg Thompson and directed by Stephanie Shine. It opened in February of 2007 at the Stella Adler Theater in Hollywood with actress-singer Sonny Thompson as Marilyn. The play then began touring theaters throughout the U.S., across Canada, New Zealand, and England with a nine-week run in the West End um, Leicester Square Theater. The play has received critical, critical acclaim throughout its tour. The Boston Globe called it breathtaking. The LA Journal called it amazing. The San Francisco Chronicle online called it one of the greatest performances of the modern stage. Wow. Yeah. So sometimes it can be done okay. You know what the difference was? I the mean, number of collaborators. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, also, you know, taking, you know, some of the, the songs were actually songs yeah. she sang. So really sticking to the history and yeah. the truth. Well, it feels like the way that you were describing it, it feels like Marilyn, the American fable mm -hmm. is more, is more her, her story being told by people outside of her yeah. and what they wanted her to be mm -hmm. as opposed to who she actually was warts right. and all. Yeah, because I mean, there was like the gossip columnists, her fans. I mean, those were "You Were So Beyond" is a, is one of the best songs in the show, and it's given to a fan. It was just it's just weird. It's it's yeah. just, it's like you know, it, it couldn't figure out what it wanted to be. Yeah, but you know, I like I started watching it, and I was like, some of these numbers are fun. Like this isn't, you know, but but I get it. I mean, you know, I get focus. it. It's, I think that's right. Uh, ultimately, you have to tell the story, but you have right. to figure out what story that you're telling. And that's if you're right. telling the story of Marilyn Monroe from an artistic historical point of view, then you have to be historically accurate. Right. But if you're telling the story of Marilyn Monroe, Monroe's biggest fan, mm -hmm. who was also... Uh, in a relationship of sorts with her, you know, mm -hmm. was the fan, but also kind of friends, like, then that's a whole different story. Then you can right. tell it from an artistic point of view instead of a historic point of view. Right. And that, you know, that we can forgive that because you're not, we're not hearing the story from Marilyn. We're hearing the story from Tommy. Right. But that's what you have to tell. Or if you're going to tell the story of how the gossip columnists felt about her at the time. Right. And what they were told about her as opposed to what it was actually happening. Right. Then fine. That's the story that we're going to get. But, but even in, and that would actually be a really cool story. I think you could be like this completely abstract Marilyn Monroe because mm -hmm. she has been viewed through so many different lenses Right. From, you know, this, the director is saying this, but her agent said that, and the publicist mentioned this, but then someone mm -hmm. saw her in a bar and they saw that, you know what I mean? It's like all of those yeah. things coming together to portray Marilyn Monroe, but who was she really? Right. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's an interesting, it, I think whenever you're doing any kind of thing, movie, art piece, book, a show on mm -hmm. you know, a Broadway show about an actual living human being. And that person is no longer alive to tell their own story. Mm -hmm. The view is always going to be skewed. So I think right. you always do have to take it from a very intentional focal point. Right. Right. I agree. 
I agree. <laughs> and there, I mean, you know, again, to, to poor Patricia with uh, having a Fafillion collaborators, it's just like, you know, by the end, she was probably just trying to get. Can you imagine the song to the only woman? Right. <laughs> like that's the other thing. The only woman. And then you get a Fafillion collaborators and you're trying to figure out how in the world you're going to make this work with the book, this new song, because you have no time mm-hmm. and you have a brand new star you got five minutes ago. And it's just like, I mean, it's bananas. And you have 16 producers who all have say, which is crazy. I mean, even nowadays with 36 plus producers, you still have like two or three mm-hmm that have any creative say and that's hard enough right right man so goodness uh and finally bombshell (laughs) so in may of this year it was announced that there would be a broadway production produced by steven spielberg who also produced the television show smash the tony and grammy winning duo of mark shaman and scott whitman who penned over two dozen songs for the television show will provide the score, which will feature many of the songs that popped up on the TV series. And according to an article in Variety written by Brent Lang, like the series, the stage show will follow the efforts to mount Bombshell, the Broadway musical within a musical about the life of Marilyn Monroe. However, its backer said the plot will also deviate from that of the series. Some characters, such as the writers Julia and Tom, played by Deborah Messing and Christian Borle on the small screen, as well as stars Ivy and Karen, portrayed by Megan Hilty and Catherine McPhee, will still be central to the storyline. Other details are being kept under wraps, presumably until opening night. Hmm, interesting. Which is a departure from originally they just wanted to bring Bombshell to the stage. Right. So no, now like it's bringing idea. Smash. Yeah, I like yeah. that idea. I like mm-hmm. the, because I, the story is fun. The story yeah. of seeing how the show is collaborated to create whatever it is that ends up being on the stage is really fun. Yeah, I agree. And also, you know, like we said about Spider-Man, the backstory of Spider-Man's way more fascinating than totally. <laughs> what ended up going on stage. I mean, I would, I would pay money to see a play about that, you know? Yes. Same so, with Rebecca. Same. Like, we all Rebecca is crazy. And we love, the, I mean, the stuff that I've seen and heard of the actual show Rebecca is really good, but the story that went on behind the scenes of yes. trying to like get it up on its feet even was a much more interesting. Much more interesting. And the same with Senator Joe. Yes. I mean, I really want a docu-series about <laughs> uh, Della Holzer's life because it is, so much better than Bernie Madoff's. It's crazy. (laughs) Crazy. So yeah, so this is exciting. So you guys, that's it for Marilyn and American Fable. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. Yeah. (laughs) See you next time. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Thank you for listening to our podcast, Theater Geeks Anonymous. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TGA B-Way! And on Facebook at Theater Geeks Anonymous. And if you want to tell us how much you love us, or you have a great story about one of the shows we've talked about, drop us a note at TGA B-Way! at gmail.com. Until, Until next, next time, time geeks. geeks! 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.